All right. Let's get rolling. We're going to jump right into it today. As most of you guys know, the rotary trap shoot's going on, and so some of us got to get up to there to, uh, well, I don't know why I'm going, but they need to, yeah, I can say embarrass ourselves, or I don't know, I'm going to go eat a hamburger. That's what I'm going to go do, and Anyway, but uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We have been in this series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, kind of examining where on earth God has gone. Because if we read the Bible, we see an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is doing miraculous things in the earth. And yet today, we don't see that same God. We don't see what, what they saw. And the question is why. And we've examined this from many different uh, viewpoints, examining does God move the same way that he did thousands of years ago, maybe even hundreds of years ago. Did something change? And we begin to look at it and say, what has caused this? Because according to the Bible, and that is our source of all, all knowledge here, is that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if that statement is true, then where on earth did he go? He is MIA. He's taken off. He's left the building. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I mean, where on earth did he disappear to? And yet, what we don't read about and we don't hear about are the things that God is doing in the earth today. One of the things that we often forget, especially in the New Testament time, in the Old Testament, you are spanning a several thousand year period. And that span, as sometimes, which is hundreds of years, might be two pages. I mean, you think about that. You know, when, when God told Abraham that his people were going to have to go into bondage and they'd be there for a time until the uh, uh, hardening of the hearts of the Amalekites and that had come due. That was 430 years. Like, put that in perspective. He's like, hey, don't worry, Abraham. I'm going to take care of your people. I'm going to have a rough go for a couple of years. 430 of them. You get into the New Testament, and you're going day by day. You're not talking a huge span of time. So it's condensed down a lot more. But the thing is that we see today is we still see God moving. We just don't always hear about it. And so because of that, we often just, just dismiss it. When we hear something miraculous that takes place, we try to figure out some explanation for it. But what we've read, and we've read this every week in Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We've read this every week, and the reason we've read this is because I wanted to lay the foundation of what we're talking about to get to the point that we're going here, is David wrote this. And David wrote this under a covenant that was a conditional covenant between God and Israel set up on Mount Sinai saying, Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you will do what I tell you to, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. What do you want to do? What say ye? They said, sure, we'll do it. And they did it for a whole day. And then they broke it. And yet God said, okay, I'm gonna, I'll always keep a remnant. There was all these conditions to it. And David wrote this down saying, people... Remember, this wasn't written to you and I. He's writing this now. This is a song. Don't forget the benefits of God. He forgives our iniquities, our sins. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our lives. You see, David looked forward to the day that you and I take for granted. The day of which we are under a new covenant based on better promises because we have a better mediator of that covenant and Jesus Christ being our great high priest. The old covenant was done away with because it could not keep up because it was conditional upon man's ability to keep it, to obey, to do what it said. And the new covenant is based on what? The works of Jesus. And that's it. That's what's beautiful. You cannot screw it up. Thank God for that. If you've ever had children, you know almost anything can be screwed up. This can't. 
Because it's not based off of you and I. It's only based on our ability to come to God by faith to receive that salvation that Jesus kept talking about. When he's standing there in John chapter 3 and he's talking to Nicodemus, saying that you have to be born again. And Nicodemus, who is a, a teacher, he's a Pharisee, he's a teacher of the law, says, what are you talking about? And Jesus scolds him. He's like, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And then we get to our favorite part, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him it might be saved. You see, Jesus came that those who would believe in Him. Now, I have to def define those terms because we, we, we misunderstand them. The belief in Jesus is not the, the same thing as believing that Jesus was a man, that Jesus lived, that there is a God. Those things are irrelevant. You believe in Him means I'm putting my faith in Him. I am taking on myself my own ability to save myself from destruction, or I'm going to take upon what Jesus did that paid the price. And the choice is mine, but what we do with that really is all that matters. Because we have to receive that. Once we've done that, then we're right with God. But Jesus made a statement. You see, he kept talking about the Holy Spirit. That there was a promise of the Holy Spirit that would come. And we see this starting in Luke chapter 24. This, we're recapping from the last couple of weeks, verse 44. And he said to them, these are the words of which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of, the, of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So that's the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Still the same thing. He opened their mind, so he's, re, he's returned, he's come back from the grave. He's opened their mind that they could understand where he was in the Old Testament. That's important. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that the repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, why did he say, make that statement? You've got to remember, they were arguing with him. Jesus said, hey guys, now listen, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. And they're like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. He said that it was necessary. We see that laid out in Isaiah 53. That he would suffer, that he would die. We see it throughout prophecy that he would resurrect. The fact that he died on the cross, they would die on what they call a tree, was prophesied 500 years before the cross was invented. I mean, there's all of this stuff that's out there. And look what he says in 48. You are witnesses of these things. What things? That Jesus died, that he was buried, and he res resurrected. Those are the things he was witnesses of. Verse 49, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are a dude with power from on high. Such a powerful statement. Because we have to ask the question, were the disciples whom he is talking to here born again at this point? Did they put their faith in Jesus? I say yes. How could they not? The problem is, is we've created a mechanism by which somebody gets born again. I joked about it last week. Everybody bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand. That's kind of our method today. we got to do it in a church, but that's really not what it says. It says that we simply put our faith in Him. That means you can do it at home. That means you can do it in the car. That means you can do it anywhere you want. You could be in Chick-fil-A eating Jesus' chicken and meet Jesus. Can you believe that? You can do this anywhere. So he, these people are born again. He says, now wait a minute. I send the promise of the Father, and I need you to wait. 
until you're endued with power from on high. Hang out in Jerusalem. We know that that's the Feast of Pentecost that's coming up. That was one of the uh, seven Jewish feasts. There were three of them that every able-bodied male Jew was required to go back to Jerusalem. Pentecost is one of those. So there's going to be a large crowd there. He says, listen, I want you to hang out here. It's going to be ten more days. Hang out in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. That struck me when I was young. Because for me, I can't wrap my head around that. You're telling me to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And yet you want me to hang out and wait? Who is dying in that moment that I'm not reaching? To be honest with you, it's kind of an arrogant statement. Because I'm trusting in my ability and not God's. So he tells them to wait. So here's the debate. The Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he do? And when do you get him? According to Ezekiel 36, which is talking about the new covenant, we've addressed this. Again, I'm just recapping. That God said that I will send my spirit within you. I will take out that heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new spirit, but I'll put my spirit within you. That's key. Now, if you're a student of Scripture at all, you understand that we, the body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thus, He can dwell inside of us. Is that what Jesus was talking about? Well, here He says specifically in, in Luke 24, verse 44, that you're endued with power from on high. So is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the same thing as the enduing of the power from on high? That's the question. Well, we see in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, which is what day? Be Sunday. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. And he said, peace be with you. Now, I, I've talked about this, but look what it just said. The doors were shut, and Jesus walked in. Does that mean he walked through the wall? I don't know, but it appears that way. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high. The same people. We see that in Acts chapter 2. We'll get there in a minute. So what I began to lay out last week is that according to Scripture, there are three baptisms. We know about one. Water baptism, right? We know that one. But there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to make or confuse the two and think they're one and the same because they're not. They're very distinct. And I'm going to show you that today, but I'm going to show you it from a different angle than we looked about it last week. So, Continuing in with that thought, this is the idea of three baptisms. I'm going to show you in Scripture this. First of all, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is John the Baptist talking. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So what's he talking about? Baptism in water. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's he? Jesus. Now, what did Jesus just tell them? I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It says in another place, Mark chapter 1, verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to do this. John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, those whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, 
referring to Jesus. And last one, John chapter 1, verse 33. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? According to John the Baptist, it is Jesus. It's recorded in all four Gospels. This is one of only four things that's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus' birth, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and then this. Every other one has a little bits and pieces of other things to give you a, a total story. So we see that whatever the baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism with the Holy Spirit is, it is done by Jesus himself. So we looked at this last week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says this, For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. What is this talking about? It is now talking about there is no longer a distinction in Christ because we were baptized into one body by whom? It says the Spirit. This is talking about salvation. That is the concept that's going on here. So we see that the Holy Spirit baptizes us. If I can write. Into Christ. We know the verses that we're drawn by the Holy Spirit. No one can come unless he's drawn by the Holy Spirit. But according to this, it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into Christ. The confusing part, that word right there. Because when we think baptized, what do we think? you got to get dunked. Dip them in the water. Well, here's the thing. The word baptism actually just means immersion. The sign of baptism is a sign of the new covenant. When we go into the water, we come out. It's like Jesus going into the grave and then coming back out. We go in dead. We come out alive, just like he did. That's the picture that's going on there. But according to that, the Holy Spirit is the one that baptizes into Christ. Correct? Is that the same thing that John the Baptist talked about? It can't be. Because the other one, the subject, is Jesus, and this one, the subject, is the Holy Spirit. It can't be one and the same. Now, in Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know what this is talking about, right? We baptize in water. So, who does this? Any disciple of Christ can baptize with water. Anybody can. Doesn't have to be a pastor, minister, you're born again. I often have parents do it with their children. If somebody has been discipling somebody in the Lord and working with them and stuff like that, they'll oftentimes come to me and say, hey, would you baptize this person? I say, no, why don't you do it? Not because I don't want to, it's because you were the mentor in their life. You're qualified, you don't have to go get some religious degree in order to do this, okay? Otherwise, John the Baptist has a problem. So we see these different things that are going on. Who baptizes in the Spirit? It's Jesus. There's a distinction between all of these. Grammatically, they cannot be the same. They can't be. So there's making a distinction here. This laying out a case. It's laying out this idea that there is something different that's going on. We have this born-again moment where the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. As a sign of that, we are then baptized with water... Just like Jesus went into the grave, we go in dead, we come out alive. 
We don't go in dirty and come out clean. There's a distinction there. And then, of course, it says, as he told the, the apostles, you need to wait until you're endued with the Holy Spirit and power from on high. Now, this idea is not a foreign one to Scripture. You've seen this. We talked about type and shadows. I don't want to go back too far and spend a bunch of time there, but look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. You've got the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus sacrificed as the Lamb of God, that Passover Lamb. So we see this idea laid out here. We also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed uh, through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what is this talking about? These were types and shadows. All these things happened to them and were written down for our benefit. If you go on and read past this part. I don't want you to be unaware. All our fathers, who were the fathers? Who were talking to Jewish people. All our fathers, those that came before us, those that came out of Egypt, were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And then it says, all were baptized into Moses. What is Moses? He's a type of Jesus. Types and shadows, understanding these things. He was a deliverer. He was a prefigured Christ. He was a mediator of that old covenant. Jesus being a mediator of the new covenant. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud. What is the cloud? It is a type of the Holy Spirit. And the sea, a type of water. So we see these three things as types and shadows going on throughout the Old Testament. At verse 3 says, all ate the same spiritual food, which was what? The manna, the bread from heaven that Jesus said was him. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. He was the giver of living water. And according to this, the rock followed him around the wilderness. If that happens to you, you probably need to seek help. But So, let's get into this. Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at every example of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And we're going to look at it at this standpoint today. Is how did they receive the Holy Spirit upon them this is very important because if you believe according to ezekiel 36 that when you are born again that you receive the holy spirit inside of you then we have to look and say if that is the only case of that type of thing in other words that the spirit within you and the spirit that comes upon you are one and the same then they should match that every single time so let's look at this acts chapter 1 verse 4 and being assembled together for them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, you notice they tried to change the subject. Jesus said, now listen, you're going to wait, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they're like, okay, that's all well and good, but you going to set up your kingdom now. Because that's what they're waiting on. They think that Jesus is going to set up his messianic kingdom. That's why they were politicking for position. They're saying, can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? So they're trying to get in there, and they're like, so are you going to do it now? Like, are we going to not be underneath Roman rule anymore? And Jesus says, listen, don't worry about that. You're going to receive power when, when the Holy Spirit has done what? Come 
upon you. Now, who's he making the statement to? The very people that he breathed on and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Why do they do this? Because you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, jumping forward to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly they ca- there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we'll come back to the tongue thing later. But what do we see? Their obedience. They're in the upper room. There's 120 of them. We know this because it tells us later on. And that as they're sitting there waiting, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, so now we're here, we're in that feast, the Holy Spirit comes down and falls upon them. So, did anybody lay hands on them? No. Had they received the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So we've got two different things that are going on here. Yes, they are filled with the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. There's a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. If you've ever seen videos of this, like the old, the old really bad 70s Christian movies, you guys remember those? They've come a long ways. Listen, they're still far from great, but they've come a long ways. But you, like, you see their hair spinning, and, and, and it's a sound. There is no wind. Anyway, that's a pet peeve. I'm, I'm moving on. That sound filled the whole house. Okay? They began to speak in tongues, and we know what happens after this. People hear them. They hear them speaking in their own languages. They're confused because these are Galileans. They're nothing but country bumpkins. They're uneducated. They don't know nothing. How are they speaking our languages? Because remember, they come from all over the area. They have to come back to Jerusalem. And then Peter stands up and gives the sermon of a lifetime. The same Peter that denied Christ just a couple months before that, the one who wasn't bold, the one who wasn't brave, stands up in front of all of these people and says, these guys aren't drunk like you think. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about. So he's telling us exactly what's happened, that Joel had prophesied this moment going forward that it would never end. Then we jump down to verse 37, and when they had heard this, when they'd heard this sermon that he gave, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, What should we do? They're amazed. They don't know what to do. Like, what would he do with this information? And Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent. What does that mean? Change your mind. That's literally what the word means. Turn from what you've done. Let you be baptized in the name of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same thing that they had just received. That's what happens. Now, we we jump down to verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this is the conclusion of Acts chapter 2. If you go forward, you see some other cool stuff that's going on. So what happened? 
It was those who gladly received his word. They were baptized. That implies that some did not. Some won't, and that's okay. And it says that about 3,000 souls were added to them. So at the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom. At the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, what happened? 3,000 died because of their disobedience. So they continued steadfastly, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So how did the Holy Spirit come upon these people? It was done corporately, right? He came down upon them. That was it. There was nothing more to it. It's very simple. So we see that at least in one circumstance that a person, an individual, a group of people can receive the, what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit corporately. Because we see it here. Now let's jump to Acts chapter 8. Starting in verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, who's Philip? We have to understand this. Because some will tell you that miracles were performed only at the hands of the apostles to confirm the word of God that was written. And now that we have the completion of the canon of scripture, none of that stuff happens anymore. The problem with that is, who on earth is Philip? Philip was nothing. Philip was chosen as one of the seven deacons. In Acts chapter 6, you see it laid out where the apostles are like, listen guys, there's a lot going on. We need some help. So they get these, these guys who are of good rapport, men of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. They said, choose seven of them, and they're going to serve us. Philip was one of those guys. And so, is he an apostle? No, because to be an apostle, you had to be with Jesus from the time of his baptism until he was resurrected. So Philip doesn't qualify. So he's just your average Joe. What qualifications do you have to be? To be a deacon, according to uh, Peter, who said that? Man of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Don't be a screw-up. I mean, that's basically it. So watch what happens here. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now you see that they heard the miracles and they saw the miracles. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Can you imagine what a sight this was? You have to remember that in Samaria, these were the half-Jews, and there was a lot of pagan worship that was going on there. So they're used to seeing things. You're going to see that here in a minute. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom all, they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So, they listened to Philip because of what he had done, the miracles that they both saw and they heard. They also had listened to Simon for basically the same kind of thing. There were sorceries that were going on, and they say, this man is of God. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the thing concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. What's it take to be born again? You've got to believe. That's what they said when they believed. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Shocked. Couldn't believe his eyes. That means that whatever Philip was doing was greater than whatever Simon was doing. Otherwise, Simon would not have been so shocked and perplexed by it. Now, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what sorceries. But he had everybody there in Samaria fooled, thinking that he was a man of God. We call these false signs and wonders. They're out there. They exist. They'll exist more uh, at the end, end days. So, 
How did these people receive the Holy Spirit? They had been born again because they believed, and then Philip baptized them, right? So naturally, they received the Holy Spirit. According to Ezekiel 36, the Spirit, I will take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Philip had baptized them, thus meaning that they were born again. They had the Holy Spirit within them. But Peter and John go up afterwards and laid hands on them because the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them yet. So what do we see? How did they receive the Holy Spirit? We see that it was a secondary event. And we also see that this time, it was the hands of the apostles that they laid on them and to receive the Holy Spirit. So now we've got an example of them receiving it corporately, and we've got an example of they receiving it as somebody laid hands upon them. But what we clearly see is there is a distinction between the Spirit within and the Spirit upon. Because that's what Jesus talked about. You will be endued with power from on high. Let's jump to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, who are we talking about? We're talking about eventually named Paul. He was the one that killed Stephen. He was standing right there. He's collecting their coats. He's all proud of this. He's getting ready to go after everybody who is a follower of the way. Remember, the term Christian had not been born yet. The term Christian is only used three times in the Bible, twice in Acts and once in 1 Peter, and it is a derogatory term. What they were called were sects of the way. There were several sects of Judaism. This was one of them. The Essenes and the Herodians and the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're just saying these guys are kind of doing their own thing. It's another sect of Judaism. But what they didn't like is that they were claiming that the Messiah had come. And nobody liked that. Verse 3. As he journeyed near Damascus, suddenly a light shone from around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Pretty sure if a light shines around you, you'd ask the same thing. The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, he's just had an encounter with Jesus. Saul was going around killing all those people that had encounters with Jesus. People that had given their life to Christ. Paul is, I keep saying Paul, it's Saul at this point. He goes around, he's ready to kill anybody. He has an encounter with Jesus. Do you think he now believes that Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, he does. I mean, my goodness, the light shines around him. He gets knocked down. He's blind. And Jesus is like, why are you coming against me? Like, there's no more question. Something supernatural has occurred. So, what does it take to put faith in Christ? Belief in Him. Saul's no longer confused. So he's three days, can't see, he's not going to eat, he's not going to drink. Verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here am I. 
So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That's a fair argument. Okay? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And I, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you come, he has sent to me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and he was baptized. And so when he received food and he was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, here we've got the whole story laid out. Ananias does go. He's obedient, which is great. And notice how he addresses him. He calls him Brother Saul. Why would he call him that? Because 10 minutes before, he's kind of freaked out by him. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. He calls him brother because Saul has now given his life over to this Jesus that appeared to him. This Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me that you may receive your sight, number one, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there rose from his eyes something like that and so on and so forth. He rose and he was baptized, and we know the story he goes on for. So now we see that Ananias came, he laid hands on him, because he was told to. So how did Paul receive the Holy Spirit? The laying on of hands. So we see two examples of the laying on of hands doing this. We see one example of it happening corporately. Now let's look at Acts chapter 10. I promise, we're almost done. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Now stop. Now who is this guy? He's a Roman soldier, and he would be called what was called a proselyte Jew. In other words, he believed in Yahweh, the same God that the Jews worshipped, and so they would do the very things that is, is saying here. He is one who feared God. Verse 4, And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him and had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners descending to him and let down the earth in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice uh, came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He's, he's being obedient to the law. And a voice spoke to him a second time, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, remember, I told you, this has nothing to do with the dietary laws. You'll see that in a minute. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what that vision ha uh, he had seen meant, behold, the men who had come from Cornelius 
had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And he called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had uh, been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Now listen, at this point, if you're a Jewish man and you have somebody that is from a Roman soldier that's being sent for you, this is no bueno. You do not want this. You hide, you ignore, you do not confess. This is why the Spirit appeared to him and showed him this vision. And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So they are laying this out. Listen, he's a good guy. He's not one of those other soldiers. They're trying to make sure he comes. So he invited them in, and they lodged with him. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, and he worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So now Peter tells us exactly what that vision is. It has nothing to do with the dietary laws. Therefore I came without objection, and as soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed to my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will uh, speak to you. So I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all things commanded you by God. They're ready. They've been waiting. They're ready. It's like, listen, tell us what we need to do. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. This is a big thing for a Jewish man to admit. Remember, they are the covenant people of God. And the Gentiles were the pagan people of God. They were not to associate with them. They were not supposed to marry with them. They're not supposed to be in their house. They're not supposed to eat with them. They're not supposed to do anything with them. And now Peter realizes, even though Jesus said it, he now realizes that God shows no partiality. In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, in which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Remember, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, just like we have seen time and time again up to this point. And we are witnesses of all things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sin. There's that term again. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that would be the Jews, who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. And Peter answered, can anyone forbid 
water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay for a few days. You see, this was a, a change that was going on here. Because Peter goes in, they're not supposed to according to the law. But God gives him a vision telling him, listen, don't you call anything unclean that I have called clean. And he gets there. And here you have somebody who's been faithful to Yahweh saying, what are you, what are you here to tell us? He had been keeping the laws and the commandments. And so now Peter is there to tell him of this new thing. And guess what? Two people were learning that day. Peter and Cornelius. And because of those two people being willing and obedient to follow the leading of God, Cornelius' entire household is saved. And all the people that were with Peter, all of the circumcision, are absolutely shocked. Because what happens? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then they realized that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now that's what Jesus said. Jesus is the one that told them that this was going to happen. But how did it fall upon them? Did he lay hands on them? No, he did not. As he was speaking those words, the Holy Spirit came upon him. So now we have two examples of the Holy Spirit coming upon them corporately. Nobody laying hands, nobody praying for another. And we've got two examples of people laying hands on them specifically to impart the Holy Spirit, if you will. So, we've got one more in Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. Now, who are disciples? This is argued about. Disciples can be disciples of anybody. You can be a disciple of somebody else. I can be a disciple of somebody else. Here we've got the use of the language. You have disciples of John. We know that because they only knew about that baptism. But every time that Luke has used this word disciples, it is always a reference to believers in Christ. Every single time, except one time in the book of Luke where he calls them disciples of John. It's no different when we see apostles. We don't have to question who that is. It's always referencing the twelve. So here we have what I believe are, are believers in Christ. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What does it take to be born again? Belief in Christ. They said, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, then what were you baptized into? And he said, John's baptism. And Paul says, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him whom would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. So how did that happen? They laid hands on them. This time it's Paul. You see, we see two examples of corporate, three examples of the laying on of hand. But you notice it keeps saying that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Not that it came in them, that He came upon them. They would be, there's another term that's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a reason for this. Why did Jesus say that they needed to wait in Jerusalem? So that they're endued with power from on high. There is no magic formula for this. It's simply being obedient. And it's that the Holy Spirit will come upon those who want Him to, I guess. And we see that there's two different ways that it's administered. Now, how did these people know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them? It tells us here. They spoke with tongues and they prophesied. So what are tongues? We'll talk about that next week. Because here's the thing. It is so misunderstood. It's very clear in Scripture what it is. But it's so misunderstood. It's been abused. It's, it, there's been a lot of bad things that have happened in the name of God. Let's just be honest with that. 
But if we stick with Scripture and just allow it to be our guide, we can figure this stuff out. We just got to be disciplined to do so. And the hardest thing to do is to throw out your preconceived notions as you're reading these passages. Because if you already think you found the truth, you'll stop looking for it altogether.